frankly, I was working to pay my way into the, into the mountains, so to speak. Right. I was like, you know, I was working super long hours, Monday to Thursday, and I'd start late on a Monday. I was like starting on at like noon on a Monday and I'd finish at like three on a Thursday and I'd hop in the car and I'd, you know, drive to the Adirondacks for six hours or drive eight hours to the Red River Gorge. And like, that was my life. I was sort of like doing the physio thing to pay my bills to get into the hills, you know? Hmm. Um, and, uh, that was kind of the finding the way period, right? Where I knew where my passion lay, it lay in all things outdoor. In this podcast, I'm going to be exploring what it takes to live a life full of adventure and freedom. I'll be interviewing adventurers, explorers, and business owners who have set their life up to have an abundance of choice. And I'm also going to give you the high performance tips and tricks I teach my adventurepreneur clients to have the kind of life they want and be the type of person they wish they were. So if you're not already, subscribe to the show and settle in for another episode of The Freedom Project. Physios, just like climbing coaches, chefs, bankers, and hell, even adventurepreneurs, aren't all made of equal quality. Some are stuck in the techniques of the 1980s, others are on the bleeding edge of the most advanced research. Some are uncaring and impersonal, others are highly personal and connect with you. So how do you tell the difference and how do you make the right decision? What should you look out for, particularly as a mountain athlete? Today on The Freedom Project, I interview the mountain athlete physio, Don Lazar. Don is a co-founder of The Movement, a multidisciplinary performance rehab clinic in Ontario, Canada. Don also works very closely with Arcteryx athletes in a unique capacity. In other words, he knows his shit. In this episode, we cover how to tell a great physio from a waste of money, the greatest BS you've ever been told about physio for you specifically, Don's five essential exercises for mountain athletes and a whole lot more besides. There's a ton of useful information that I know you can take from this and apply directly to your life. So here is the wonderful Don Lazar. First up, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it, Tom. I appreciate you reaching out and connecting with me. Where did your interest in, firstly, like, being in the mountains and where did that combine with physio and movement? Jeez. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up on the East coast of, of, uh, of Canada and, um, you know, I, I was pretty rural. So I grew up kind of, you know, bouldering and scrambling and biking and swimming and cliff jumping. Um, that was my childhood. When I think, think back to how I spent my childhood when I wasn't in school, um, I was either reading books or, you know, you know, rolling around in, in the dirt and trees and climbing and swimming and doing all things outdoors. So I think I've always had a desire to, to move. Um, and my first real, you know, I got into skiing and snowboarding at a pretty young age, but I was, I grew up on the East coast, which is, um, you know, relatively flat as, uh, as you know, mountainous areas go. Um, but, in university, a pal of mine moved out to, to British Columbia and I started going out on a bit of an annual pilgrimage to, uh, um, to the mountains. And, and it sort of started a bit of like a mountain tutelage for me where, you know, he was always a couple steps ahead and sort of pushing my comfort zone and, um, you know, challenging, you know, my, uh, 
you know, what I, what I thought myself capable of, which I think that's what I really love about, about mountain sports and, and being, being outdoors is sort of like, you know, the, the mental piece of sort of like evaluating, you know, where you are and what's around you and, you know, the communication involved in kind of mountain partnerships. Um, but then just, you know, being, being challenged, you know, physically as well is something that, that brings me a lot of passion. So, um, you know, I then got into physio school and, uh, I think going into physio school, I always thought I was like, cool, I'm going to obviously work with, with athletes and maybe had this perspective that, you know, a lot of people going in are like, Oh, I'll work with a sports team or something like that. But, but I I knew I didn't want to work with a traditional sports team, you know? Um, so when I, graduated physio school and got into like orthopedic rehabilitation it was I was kind of working in a more generic realm and I was working with a lot of people who weren't particularly uh motivated (laughs) perhaps and uh I was trying to find find my way for a number of years but um you know I still had so much passion for getting people excited about moving their bodies and, and reclaiming function. Um, yeah. What do those years feel like when, yeah, yeah. What do those years feel like when you're kind of finding your way? Because I find this is really Mm -hmm. common for entrepreneurs as I I like to call Mm -hmm. them, but it's like, I have this conversation. I had two today with people who were on the edge of finding their passion in their career and combining those two things like what did those years feel like where you weren't quite matching up with those yeah yeah it's a good question I mean you know I I I loved being a physiotherapist still Uh, I was frustrated by the lack of motivation and compliance and commitment to um you know and everyone has challenges even even like I'm working with you know high level athletes and and uh you know, people who are really goal oriented and there's, there's challenges around mindset and struggling through the rehab process. But, um, there, there was a different level of lacking motivation that, that frustrated me, you know, when people would show up and I'd ask them to like, you know, how things have been going. And I'd ask about a specific exercise and they'd be like, can you just like go over that with me? And it was so clear that they hadn't done anything. You know, Mm. um, so there came a point where I had sort of maxed out my, what I could draw from those experiences just from like, you know, a certain amount of clinical repetitions that you need to identify patterns and like, you know, understand how different bodies move. And, um, but I'd kind of maxed, maxed that out to some extent with the clientele I was working with. And I, I got into a rhythm where I was like, frankly, I was working to pay my way into the, into the mountains, so to speak. Right. I was like, you know, I was working super long hours, Monday to Thursday, and I'd start late on a Monday. I was like starting on at like noon on a Monday and I'd finish at like three on a Thursday and I'd hop in the car and I'd, you know, drive to the Adirondacks for six hours or drive eight hours to the Red River Gorge. And like, that was my life. I was sort of like doing the physio thing to pay my bills to get into the hills, you know? Hmm. Um, and, uh, that was kind of the finding the way period. Right. 
where I knew where my passion lay, it lay in all things outdoors, right? Um, and I loved physiotherapy and rehabilitation and training and strength and conditioning. Um, but my skill set in that realm wasn't, and I think this is where, where it lies, my skill set wasn't being challenged with the demographic that I was working with. Right. And that, and I think that's where I sort of that finding the way piece. I was, I was not being challenged in that clinical setting in, in a way that like, that, that like, you know, time in the outdoors challenges me on, on the other aspect mm -hmm. of my passion. Right. There's a marketer that I know, Kath, and she always talks about the difference between zero to one populations and one to a hundred populations. And I think I spend a lot of time working the, I've, one to 100 populations and it sounds like that's where you are maybe the the 90 to 100 populations as well but it's that it's a very different mentality of like or even the minus five to zero populations getting pa people back to a baseline as opposed to progression uh, progressing them mm. it's way more challenge and there's way more and personally i find it more meaningful and there's more of an incentive to help people reach those upper echelons compared to getting people back to baseline where you spend a lot of time kind of i think probably in the beginning of your career Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, <clears throat> I, there, there's some, there's so much like, there, like some of my most meaningful, uh, relationships and clinical experiences were actually getting people back to baseline function and having them recognize, you know, at a very low level and having them recognize how much more their, they, their body had to give. Right. Um, and so I'd never demean that, like that aspect of the rehab and how important that, that, that realm is. Right. But, um, but personally, I just get so much more passion out of this, like, you know, yeah. One to a hundred, uh, realm that you're talking of. Yeah. When was the decision point or was there a, a unique decision point when you thought I have to make this more of a balanced approach or embed the mountains more into my general lifestyle? Mm. Yeah, honestly, it was around the time I had kids. Um, if I, if I, I've never really thought about it, but you know, just in this moment thinking about it, it was around the time I had kids. And so having a child changes your lifestyle and your, um, your flexibility. And so I had, I mean, a little bit like to some extent less desire to be away because I wanted to be you know, with my child and, and throughout the development. Right. But, um, so there was less desire to be away, but I still had that passion to get into the Hills. And so I, if there was a way for me to blend that, that work with, um, with my passion of, of being, um, spending time in the mountains and outdoors, then that I knew that that was going to be, the way forward to, to be, um, you know, living a lifestyle that, um, both satisfied me on all on, in all realms. Right. Um, but also setting like a, a, you know, a great role model for, you know, what life should be like for, um, for my children or what it can be like, right. Not just a grind to, um, to the end, you know, means to an end sort of thing, but, but, you know, a, culmination of 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 everything that makes you you right 
Mm, I find that so interesting. I had a coach that used to work for me, Jace, or I sw- sorry, he used to. He works for me in a different capacity now, but he was like doing a lot of coaching for me. He's a great guy. And he talked about, I think his his kid was pretty young or maybe just been born when he started working for us. Mm. And he had this phrase of just be the example. Like That's who I want to be for my daughter, in his words. like, And it really seems to align yourself to a, a good life or a meaningful life or you know that you're being observed. Mm, totally. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I now have two two kids and, um, you know, I, I never force anything on them. I, uh, I give them lots of exposures, lots of opportunities. Um, but they're always watching. They're always listening. And, uh, you know, I think, yeah, to, to your coach's point, it, it, it forces you to really, really think about those things and, and make sure that you are, um, if you're, if you're parenting intention with intent, of course, um, you know, it, uh, it forces you to really evaluate those things and, and what sort of <clears throat> person do you want to be, um, in front of and with your, your family, your children. Yeah. Yeah. What were the first few steps in, in molding your life to suit the I'm going to say more balanced approach, but, or you could say adventurepreneurial approach. Mm, Yeah. You know, it was a pretty slow process, honestly. Um, I didn't really know how to go about it. I think I've always had a bit of a, um, uh, there's a, there's a word for it that, that sort of uh, almost self, not good enough sort of mindset. Um, Jeez. It's, it's, it's classic. It's all over the internet these days. Um, but I had a bit of a mindset where I, you know, I was kind of self-sabotaging in the sense that like, oh, there's lots of people already doing this. I'm, you know, what makes me the right person, you know? Um, and, uh, but I, but I had some opportunities come up to do, um, to do some workshops with some of the early backcountry, uh, or sorry, climbing academies, the architects climbing academies, um, where I was primarily working with, um, I mean, like more public facing opportunities, um, and through that, I ended up, um, you know, having a good relationship with, with kind of the sports marketing team there. And, um, step one was really cutting my ties of corporate, corporate physiotherapy. And so what does that feel like? Uh, freedom. <laughs> yeah. Was it, was it daunting at the time? Cause I'm, I'm like working with a couple of people now who were, have like decent salaries, decent jobs. It's very predictable, very safe. Mm. Families may not have families. And if there's the daunting aspect of it too, but there's there on the cusp of like liberation. Yeah, man, it was, it, it was scary for sure. But you know, uh, we were opening up a clinic in a town that I had a pretty good, uh, network of, you know, friends and family who I knew might be supportive, but that only kind of gets the ball rolling. Right. Um, but yeah, of course it's going to be scary. Anything in life that's, that's going to be meaningful or have a meaningful impact is, is, is going to probably bring on some sense of, you know, anxiety and, and nerves. Right. Um, but I, I had good business partners, uh, who had very complementary skill sets and, um, yeah, we, I, I, so the fact of the matter is, is I knew that if it didn't go well, I, I could get back to a corporate gig. It would suck. Yeah. Right. But you can always go back to it. Right. 
Um, and so I, I left on good terms. And, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, if you have passion and commitment and good coaching, um, you know, it's, it's likely going to work, you know? Um, and, uh, and so we, we took on a, uh, a mentorship right from the beginning, a, a business mentorship, helping, um, physiotherapists kind of break the mold of traditional, uh, traditional clinical models. Um, and, you know, it was probably one of the, it was, it was some of the best money we ever spent. It wasn't cheap. It was like, I think it was like 20 K a year or something like that for our first two years in business. And like, it's a lot when you're starting out, but you know, it, it probably, it took us from, you know, zero to 80 really quick, you know, 80%, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, so, you know, I can never say enough about the importance of, of good quality coaching, I would say. Yeah. So what else? That's a huge impact point. I think, knowing that there's a structure and not figuring it out for the first time yourself and thinking, mm -hmm. okay, I've reduced the, the kind of the screw around time. I've, I can go, this is what's working for me. What else did you do that set you up for success in that initial phase? Yeah. Um, we opened right around, like we opened the business right at the start of COVID. Uh, so honestly, <laughs> it was, it was timing. Yeah. You, you know what? It was, it, it was, it was great looking at everything as an opportunity, um, mm -hmm. looking at, looking at every, every challenge, every hurdle as like, you know, a learning opportunity. And as, uh, you know, we refer to ourselves, you know, from a physio perspective as movement optimists. <laughs> um, but that optimism, you know, transfers over into our business life as well. Um, and, and having that kind of, you know, approach of curiosity of like, well, why didn't that work? Or like, what, you know, what, what else was going on there that, you know, as opposed to when something bad happens, just sort of like, you know, there's two, two, two approaches that are really common, right? One is just to like, you know, brush it off and like grunt forward. Right. And you're like moving on. Right without actually evaluating, okay, well, what's the learning opportunity here? Right. And then, and then there's another, another side that I find less productive as well from a business perspective, which is, um, which is sort of like that defeatist mindset, like, oh, this, this isn't going to work. Right. Um, and so I think like coaching and curiosity were like two of our huge, uh, <laughs> you know, as a team, two of our big, um, strengths that we had sort of to, to springboard our business. <clears throat> Love that. Love that. Mm -hmm. If there's someone who is on the cusp of launching their own business, but they find the, that, ta uh, that tether to safety is maybe quite strong. What would you say to that kind of person? Oh. Jeez. Um, you know, like, like, like I said, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, especially in, in the realm that I'm in, there, there's lots of opportunity for, you know, uh, working for someone else. Right. Um, you can always, you can always go back. Right. But, um, you know, dipping your toe is, is, is it's a challenging route to go, right. Dipping your toe and trying to slowly build, um, really just, 
you, you really need to go. I think I truly think you really need to go all in and commit yourself to something. Give yourself a period of time where where you're sort of like, you know what, this is this is my window for me for, to to sort of give it a real college try, and mm-hmm. um, and then knowing that you have that that you know for me at least I had that opportunity to fall back on. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, I always play with the idea of if I firstly if I get to my deathbed and I think what if probably should do it now if i can picture that in the future going mm. oh, what if i start that business mm-hmm. what if i'd change the model that what if i'd spent more time in the mountains like that for me is the ultimate line of failure and then i suppose there's the what could i do to to get back to where i am now and most most frequently that's a pretty simple route back to where you like where you could be now totally yeah and i, I think that's it is that People often think once they've kind of cut those ties that there's no going back yeah. to that realm, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it's not the reality. Um, yeah. Tell me about Arc'teryx and how you got to work with them. Yeah. So honestly, it, it all kind of started. Um, I was spending some time going out to some of their academies, their climbing academies, and their um, they started the ski touring based backcountry academy in Jackson Hole. And Jackson Hole was this place that was just like the top of my North American places that I wanted to go along with Alaska. Right. And so when I saw that there was an opportunity to go to Jackson Hole and, you know, learn from, you know, the likes of Mark Smiley and Joey Bosberg, these sort of like, you know, guides in, in the North American ski industry that, you know, I think just do really amazing work. Uh, I, I had to do it. So I signed up for a couple of clinics, um, flew down to Jackson a couple years in a row. And, um, you know, I met Joey Bosberg, um, at, at my first clinic and just such a rad dude. And we got talking on the skin track and, <clears throat> you know, turned out he'd been dealing with some chronic low back issues for, a number of years and you know we were he was just picking my brain and I was you know spilling the beans because I like like what I do and uh he was like hey man like I've tried a bunch of stuff but I like what you're saying like can we connect after this event to um figure out if you can help me and I was like hell yeah let's let's do it and so we worked totally remotely uh, pre-COVID before physios really did any remote work. Um, and we had super great success. And he kind of ended up sharing that with the sports marketing team. And that sort of spilled over into this relationship that's been developing over the past two and a half years between you know the movement, myself, and Arcteryx. And so... Um, we two years ago sort of um kind of bit the bullet and we were like we want to come out and give your athlete team a presentation at at your like athlete summit um you know we'll be if 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 we can like stay in and around where you guys are and you create time for us we'd love to do some performance assessments with your athletes and um connect and we we ended up doing that and it rolled into this beautiful relationship where you know, we've been, um, you know, slowly building relationships and trust with, um, 
with their athlete team and, and working with them in whatever way, shape or form that entails. Sometimes injury based, sometimes, um, uh, more sort of performance based, sometimes just, you know, to, as like a third party consultant to sort of bounce, this is what I've been doing in my rehab. This is what I've been doing in my training. Like, what are your thoughts? Right. And so really we, we work in a whole bunch of different ways from like a rehab perspective, from a performance perspective and from a consultant perspective, um, with the team. And it's, it's like, you know, such a dream, man. It's, it's like, um, a really great opportunity. And, um, you know, that imposter syndrome that I was sort of referencing earlier, um, you know, it, it's, it's really helped me sort of overcome that, that hurdle because it's allowed me to, uh, you know, challenge myself in a way and, 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 and come through, uh, by, by helping out these people who have some amazing resources and have worked with lots of really strong, you know, trainers and clinicians and, you know, adding something to the conversation. Right. Um, so it's been nice that there's so much in there that is such a useful lesson for business owners. Firstly, there's the one that you said there of like just kind of taking the risk and speaking, like asking and offering something to, mm-hmm. um, to big organizations because you don't know where you're going to get. But that is, is only built on being an expert. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing, like actually knowing what you're doing mm-hmm. and developing a relationship and giving freely as well. Mm-hmm. So you develop those relationships and you just like gave without expectation. And that seems to be when good things happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, I to- totally agree. Um, it's, it's been, uh, it's been, been spectacular and really brings a lot of, uh, um, a lot of value to, to my life in a lot of regards. It, it, it's kind of been the, the pinnacle of what's, what's allowed me to like blend, uh, work and passion. Right. Yeah. yeah there's those opportunities there. And I think sometimes we're, I don't know whether it's just a UK thing, but there's this idea of you can't have it all or you mm. can't live your dream and be financially successful mm-hmm. or like you can't um enjoy your enjoy your life and be financially successful mm. and the more i i think the more the world develops into an internet-based society the more you only need as kevin 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 sorry kevin kelly would say a thousand true fans and you can find your niche mm-hmm. and you can really make that work for you yeah yeah it's true yeah, it's uh, it's a direction that I really want to want to continue to dive down is is um, is providing you know outdoor athletes, particularly in the climbing and snow sports realms, with um, you know year round support from a from a training perspective, and yeah. to be a consultant in their corner, right? Because when you've been training somebody, you know. Uh, year round, you know, their in season, off season, preseason program, you know, where their capacities are. And when an injury happens, right, no one's in a better position to sort of help guide that recovery in a efficient and meaningful manner. And so, um, you know, to your point about, you know, needing only a 1000 true fans, right, the number is actually far lower than that, in in that in that space to be able to provide a really super meaningful, um, career and, you know, income for myself while providing a, an even more meaningful, 
um, support system to some passionate people. Yeah. Sounds awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm psyched to, uh, see where it leads. And, uh, this, this winter is going to be sort of a, a big period for like kind of pushing, pushing that realm and sort of like trying to, um, you know, find those, those, those people who are, are looking for, for that, looking for that level of support to have someone like, like me in their, in their corner. Right. Well, I suppose you give the extra two, three, four percent that they've been seeking. And that's a huge difference at that kind of level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, like we don't like talking about injury prevention, but, but injury risk reduction. And like, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think strength training is one of the best ways to, and the research supports it. You know, people are like, Oh, I'm doing my mobility work. I'm doing my stretching and that's great. But the, the reality is that, um, from a research perspective, um, strength training, you know, maybe has like, if strength training has like, I forget the exact numbers, but if it's like an 11% reduction in risk of injury, um, you know, stretching and mobility work is like 3%. So, you know, combine the two and it's probably even better. Right. But, uh, um, strength and conditioning from a, a return on investment per perspective has, um, you know, within the research, the biggest, um, return on investment for injury risk reduction. Yeah, it, I feel from, again, my somewhat uneducated, but ex a little bit experienced perspective, <clears throat> that there's a bit of a crossover in mentalities between endurance sports and mountain sports in terms of, oh, I just need to put the volume in and more volume and more volume. But getting strong is like revolutionary to, to these kind of athletes. Totally, yeah, it's actually pretty cool. Like, um, you know, if you look at every other... Um, every other sort of professional sports out there there's like preseason off-season nutrition dialed like recovery sorted strength and conditioning right it's like every sport out there whether you're talking like curling golf tennis basketball football baseball rugby right all of these sports some individual some team some power some endurance some you know high skill some like more sort of brute force they all have a strength and conditioning um dialed program and there's a reason that those sports are all at, on these like crazy trajectories right and and i think like um you know i think i think there's a bit of a missing link especially maybe less so within like the um, professional community but um, especially within, within the, um, more recreational or adventurepreneurial or sort of passion based, um, realm that, 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 uh, there's a bit of a gap there. Absolutely. man. Nice use of the term adventurepreneur as well. I yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. Respect. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive into the, the physically practical side of things. What are the most mm. I want to start off with like very principle-based perspective, then work down to the specifics. What are the common BS principles that you see laid out in front of you in the world of prehab, rehab, like anything around injuries and physios? Yeah. Okay. This is a deep, this is a, this is a big one. How far down the rabbit hole do you want to go here, Tom? As far <laughs> as you can go. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to break it down into like, three, three areas. When I, when I, when I think of like the biggest 
crocs of BS in the in the rehab industry. Um, I think of a fixer mindset. I think of like a manual first approach, and I think of communication and language, and the importance of communication and language. And I'll dive into both of those. So, or all three of those. Sorry. So. <clears throat> From like a fixer mindset, what we what we see is people positioning themselves as these gurus, these people who have the holy grail of healing, right? Whether that's like a particular manual therapy or a particular modality or, um, and the language comes into play here as well, because positioning yourself as a fixer puts people in a passive role, mm-hmm. right? It's like, what can, what can I do to you, Tom, to make you better? And so what that leaves, where that leaves you is that the value in me as a rehab professional is what I can do to you mm-hmm. as opposed to what I can teach you or how I can guide you through it, Right. The reality of rehabilitation is that it's a journey, it's a process, it's not this like one thing, right? And clinicians positioning themselves as a fixer, and the more more clinicians that are positioning themselves as fixers, the broader that mindset, that expectation from you know people in society is that this person does things to me to make me better. Right. And that's probably the number one um, hurdle that we're always working with at the outset of rehabilitation to help people get amazing outcomes. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose that is easy to market to begin with because it's you're in pain. I can solve that. It's very like it supplements the ego is another thing that's like Mm -hmm. it's all about me. This is what I can do. And I suppose it plays into that mentality of here's a pill to fix the pain, which people are very much after low effort, high reward, instant solution. Yeah. hundred percent. It's that, that Western mindset of like, yeah. Um, And and back to like where, how I got kind of burnt out in my early career was dealing with people who wanted that fixer. They didn't want to coach. They didn't want to guide. They didn't want a facilitator of change. They wanted a fixer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those people would come back and they will not have done the work that we had discussed and put into 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 action. And they're wondering why there's been no change. Yeah. And it's it's because I'm not doing a good job fixing or is it, you know, is it a mindset shift that needs to happen, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the second piece you mentioned was, so gone. sorry, before I interrupt you. That's okay. I was going to say that kind of rolls into, into the, the, the next piece, which is kind of like, um, you know, most people, when they think of going to a physio or a rehab practitioner or a chiro, they think of soft tissue release. They think of acupuncture, they think of chiropractic or, uh, spinal manipulation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if you ask a lot of people, that's what they're going to talk about, right? They're not going to talk about the education. They're not going to talk about the exercise. They're not going to talk about, you know, 
uh, mindset, right? But I think a manual therapy first approach in rehabilitation is probably the number number. I mean, it's right up there. There, these these three things are probably all around the same level, right? I think I think that's like one of the big problems is that people again this rolls into that fixer mindset and that it's something that someone's going to do to me that makes makes me better now manual therapy in and of itself isn't the problem it's the conversations nuance and language around the manual therapy and what the end goal of that manual therapy is because if people use manual therapy to say hey look i was able to change your symptoms by, you know, adjusting your back or, you know, rubbing this tissue. How does that make you feel about your, your symptoms and your, your issue? And people are going to come around and they're going to be like, I mean, I get like, it's pretty fixable. Like, it's, like this can be, this can be managed. Like this is manageable. And then it's like, totally. So if we can control your pain like this, there's probably nothing catastrophic going on. Now, now that you're not in a little bit less pain, we've got this window of opportunity to start doing some of these movements that you've not been able to get into. So let's do that. Let's spend a whole bunch of time now accessing that, that window that you didn't have access to, right? If you use manual therapy in that approach and you position it as a, you know, an early phase tool to get people moving and educate them that their body is not frail that it is adaptable um, and that pain doesn't necessarily mean um, harm, then I have very little problems with manual therapy. But the fact of the matter is, is that people use manual therapy like a fish hook. And it's something that you can't do to yourself, but I can do to you. So you got to come back to me. Mm, good business decision right. if you want to rip people off. <laughs> You know, um, <laughs> this is this is the rabbit hole, right? Mm -hmm. This is the how, how deep. So I'm going to come back with a story about that. <clears throat> My wife is currently she's got a kind of plantar fasciitis, which is I kind of I I now know is a catch-all term for you've got pain in your foot, and we kind of can't really like can't really solve that. The healthcare system in the UK is pretty different from Canada, and we're lucky enough to have private healthcare. But the only um, the only routes that private healthcare will cover are the very traditional models. So Harriet's been sent to what I would probably guess is a very average practitioner. It, and it's just manual therapy. And she's asking for exercises. Like she's done a lot of CrossFit, she trains, she skis, she hikes, she does a lot of outdoorsy stuff. And she's like, she knows that she has to put the work in. But this practitioner's, practitioner's mentality is of like, we'll just do this and it will go away eventually. And I've seen this kind of circuitous. Yeah. We'll rub you with this ultrasound and we'll stick a couple needles in you. Exactly. And, oh, you know, ultrasound's not working. Let's try cold laser. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, just a quick favor to ask. If you love the show and you think it may help someone else in the world, then head to wherever you listen to The Freedom Project and leave a five-star review and maybe even share it with some friends. It really does help me and it helps the show too. I can continue to get fantastic guests on the show. It reaches more people and it makes me feel great too. So I would be enormously grateful if you could leave a five-star review and share any episodes of the podcast that you love. 
It's crazy. Yeah. And I had exactly the same thing. Like, And it seems to be like this contrast between a traditional approach and mm. a modern approach, or am I getting that somewhat wrong? Totally. Yeah, there, there was an, it, it's totally a, people are latched on to a historical approach and they haven't kept up with the research and the evidence that, that tells us what's actually making the difference. And the, the difference comes from, you know, again, and exercise can be misused as well. Mis, don't get me wrong. Exercise isn't the, uh, isn't the holy grail either. I think that the core of what helps people recover best is knowledge, right? Understanding and a mindset around their body of um, robustness and adaptability and using that mindset in conjunction with knowledge that's built, you know, as a, as a team, right? Communicative team uh, to get people moving in ways that are meaningful to them. It just so happens that in my realm that I work, <clears throat> that tends to be at a pretty high level of movement, right? But, you know, for, um, for somebody working with, with seniors or with, um, you know, uh, yeah, pe- people, people with lower functional demands, that might look a lot different, right? So there's no one, you know, exercise cure-all like social media would lead you to believe right um and uh you know i guess that's another rehab bs one is sort of like the the social media side of things but i think in general i you know social media has been really positive for rehab and exercise i uh, i'm an advocate for people you know exploring their bodies and moving more and uh you know the biggest kind of problem that I see in the social media realm is this like very black and white um, Mm. approach as opposed to like understanding that there's nuance and that there's, you know, there's a, you know, uh, better and better and worse movements for, you know, every body and every, every issue, depending on that individual, right? There's no, there's no holy grails, right? But I think what social media has done really well is getting people to explore their bodies and um move in atypical ways which is which is great yeah um, you and, see that um, divisiveness in nutrition you see it in politics you see it in business coaching like anything on social media it's clickable and watchable to say here's my extreme opinion um totally. it's unfortunate that the the truth is somewhere in the middle so talking about that you said that knowledge is the kind of is a key component of this and providing clients with knowledge is a key component of this so Mm. what are the false assumptions that people have around your area of work that they they take that kind of that don't really serve them in the long run oh yeah it's a you know what that's a tough question tom just because it's it's like so nuanced to the individual, right? Um, but some really common things that uh, that I see amongst athletes is like um, kind of a more is more approach, right? Um, training training volume management, I think, is a huge huge piece in rehabilitation amongst high performing athletes. Um, that uh, you know, 
um, you know, recovery, right? Um, a real, a real having, having a more nuanced understanding of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, recovery is not foam rolling and stretching mm-hmm. and, you know, thumper gunning. Um, you know, those things, those things can feel really good. And they, the research tells us that they can help you have a, you know, better short time frame subsequent performance, right? So say you were, um, doing CrossFit games and you were doing subsequent performances, doing that stuff between events, helpful, right? Um, but from a full on recovery standpoint, you know, helping people understand the importance of nutrition and sleep and the, the deep dive nuances of nutrition from like a, you know, the hard questions of like, you know, given that you're, you're active, um, you know, 10, to 12 different times per week, right? You know, you're having double days. Are you actually getting enough calories to support a, um, a recovery situation or, or are you slowly in this kind of chronic catabolic state of breakdown? Yeah. Right. So asking those hard questions around, around, you know, the true sort of staples of recovery. Yeah. And then I suppose you have the, to use that point, specifically and to go into a bit more nuance with it or to add another layer to it then you have things like body image that creeps in i was witnessed a conversation in the gym between a female athlete um, and a coach the other day and that was a a huge topic of conversation there it was like if i eat these calories that will help me perform then i have the trade-off of body image and that is a well that's a can of worms mm, yeah it sure, it sure is it's a it's a tough one and it, it sort of goes to, um, you know, the model of care that we, that we built at the movement, um, is such that, you know, re- relationships are at the center of them. And so we have these conversations all the time with people. Um, and they're usually really productive because we've built such good relationships with these people, um, that we can sort of unpack that can of worms, right? Um, and I used to avoid those conversations because I knew they were a can of worms and I didn't have time for them or relationships for them. Yeah. And the skills as well. It takes a long time to develop the skill to listen empathetically and to provide the right level of guidance without just smashing someone with advice. Hmm. Yeah, it's true. So is that the third piece you're talking about there? The, the communication, the the third finger of the BS trifecta. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, the communication piece, um, it kind of rolls into, uh, in, into all of them, but it's like, have you ever heard of the term nocebo, Tom? Yeah. 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 yeah right. So the number of people that get nocebo'd. Let's and, quickly and explain in, nocebo to the audience. Yeah. So I guess most people know what a placebo is, which is like, if you think something's going to make you feel better, you know, and you do it or you take it you know, there's some, some amount of the benefit that you get out of it is just neurocognitive, right? You, you, you thought you were going to get better and now you feel better. Nocebo is kind of the opposite. So I'll give you a couple examples. So we hear people, (laughs) you know, you know, Jess, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, your, your good friend, Jess, she, she works for, for, for us obviously. And, and, uh, um, she had a client come in the other week with high hamstring pain 
and she'd been noceboed by a straight up bullshit claim. She had been told that the pain in her hamstring was coming from the lower lobe of her lung. Hmm. I, you know, it, it's like, but it sound, it was, it was told to them by like a professional, mm-hmm. right? Someone's got a white in coat a on. Of, They're going to be in a position of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that person came in with like a totally false claim about what the driver of their pain was. And so it took a period of time for just to build a relationship to break down that sort of claim that had set them up really for failure. And so um, that's one example of a nocebo, right? Um, Because like, what can you do? What can a physiotherapist do about the lower lobe of my left lung, (laughs) right? Kind of set up for failure there. but another one that we that we get way more often is kind of like exaggerations of reality. When people come in and they're like, you know, I was told I just had an X-ray of my knee, and I was told I've got the worst worst arthritis they've ever seen. Um, you know, I, I just you know I've kind of lost hope on this thing now. I'm not really too sure what you can do for me, Don. And you know, you start checking them out, and the reality is, is they're you know. We're talking about a knee here, I guess. Knee moves really well. There's a lot of weakness of all the tissues around the knee, right? And most of the pain is kind of uh, weight-bearing. You're like, cool, there's a ton of opportunity here, but the only thing you heard from another healthcare practitioner was that you've got the worst knee they've ever seen, right? And so that person's pain has now been, you know, very much pathologized, and they've been set up for, um, for failure from a pain perspective. And so it's kind of the opposite. Noceboing is kind of the opposite of, um, of a placebo where there are negative expectations sort of set up around people's, um, you know, situation that, that drives more, more symptoms, really. Got you. Got you. And then your role yeah. in communicating is... Well, I mean, depending on the relationship that these people have with where they've gotten that information, it changes the changes how that goes, right? Um, but um, you know, th- this whole sort of idea of like communication is, you know, and going back to the manual therapy, you know, we get that with like with spinal manipulation, where people are like, you know, hey, you know, I was told my SI joint was out of place, or this or that was was malaligned. And so I need that to be, you know, put back into place. Right. Um, which, you know, dr- that manual therapy approach driving into that fixer mindset and this passive sort of, um, you know, do something to me scenario, um, powerless, right. It leaves you powerless. And so our role as clinicians going back to like what I think is the most important part of rehabilitation is, communicating with optimism and clarity and developing understanding around what's really going on in their body, what influences they can have on their symptoms and the reality of where their body can take them and how robust and adaptable it is. And if we can sort of 
pull all those things together through gradually, slowly over time as you're building relationships and helping people, not just telling them to do exercises and sending them out the door because that's useless, I think, but like moving them through the exercises and helping them be like, now what did, did, before I asked you to do that sort of like, you know, front foot elevated lunge, when I showed it to you, what was going through your head, you know? And then like, after they've done it, be like, cool. Like that went pretty well. Like, what did you think? You know, like helping them sort of like re-navigate what they expect of their body, you know? And and that's an ongoing thing. There'll be so many people listening to this thinking, man, Don sounds great. If only I could find a physio in my area who had that kind of approach. And I, I personally seem to have like just been lucky with the people that I've met over my time. And I seem to have hit Mm -hmm. a series of good practitioners. So like, what should people look for? Like, how could they find someone who's coming from the right kind of place for this? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, you, you want someone who genuinely listens to, to you. You want someone who, um, and not superficially, but kind of deeply, right. Tries to understand your goals and who you are and what you need to get back to. Right. And asks questions about your, you know, thing, things that you're uncomfortable with and like what you're maybe fearful of. Right. And, um, you know, takes an approach of curiosity as opposed to, um, telling you what's wrong. You know, there was actually, you know what, there was a great Instagram reel that went out recently and it was some British guy and it was, it was hilarious. Tom, I'll send it to you afterwards, but it was this, this fella who it's, it's basically a physio talking to a patient, but it's just a headshot of the physio. Um, and it's like, he's having a back and forth with himself essentially, but he's like, he's like, he's like, Oh, you're having, you're having foot, foot pain. Are you? Well, let me see. Look, it's your shoes. Look, your shoes are, are, are wrong. That's your problem. And well, let me see you, let me see you walk. And I, uh, you know, you know, it's your, it's your gate. That's the problem. And it's like, you know, and it, it just carries down this path of, but, but it's the reality is that, you know, instead of like talking to our, our clients and like hearing them out and then, you know, uh, giving people hope, it's just like creating, like, this is the problem. This is the problem. This is the problem. As opposed to, Oh, this is interesting. There's some opportunity here. Let's see what else is, you know, uh, I, I often want, you know, f- for my family, for my friends, I want, I want clinicians to be looking for opportunities, not looking for problems. Mm. Really nice. Really right. nice. So if someone's going to that, like checking out a physio for the first time and maybe got a, and something that's been problematic for a while, it's like, am I being listened to? Mm-hmm. Are they curious? Am I being it? listened to? Totally. Yeah. Am I being listened to? Uh, or are they just, is someone just telling me, uh, you know, telling me what they think. Right. And then once you get into the meat of it, once you start actually, you know, um, getting into the rehabilitation, you know, uh, our education and exercise, uh, at the forefront of, of the plan, or is the majority of your time spent on a bed, right? Um, having some like having something done to you, right? And you know, we often say like active problems require active solutions, 
right? Mm. And so um, those are some other good little thoughts around like whether you're in the right place. When you're thinking about mountain athletes as a whole, and I know that's quite a catch-all phrase, what are the most common issues you see and how do we begin to prevent them ideally, but work on them generally? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I think like, generally speaking, there's a lot of passion in, in mountain athletes, right? There's a lot of psych. And so there tends to be um, training load management is one piece, right? Um, is it that I think is volume? important. Often, yeah. yeah, often too much volume, um, but that's a hugely variable, uh, you know, variable thing. But I, but I think that's often an issue. Um, the more is more mentality. Um, the idea of like preseason uh, training, uh, depending on like so. Let's break it out actually. So like in climbers, I would say some things that I often see are sort of like hip mobility and end range shoulder stability from like a physical perspective and from a broader rehab perspective is sort of training load management. Okay. Those are kind of like three of the primary issues that I, that I often see in climbers, um, in snow sports athletes, um, the, the two sort of broader, um, kind of like training slash rehab things are preseason programming that's more than just muscular endurance in, in most snow sport athletes, I see, I see them doing tons of preseason muscular endurance work. And, you know, I think that that's, that there's some, some value in that. Um, but having a pure strength block and some power work is really important in the preseason as well. Um, and sets you up for a, so have you heard of the term critical force? Uh, I have, yeah, but it's worth explaining. Yeah, so critical force is essentially the uh, the force or the work that you can do for like in a given muscle group indefinitely, right? So it's a, it's a workload that you can carry on at indefinitely, <clears throat> you know? Um, and so there's a ceiling to critical force though. You know, we often see like a bit of a ceiling around like 60% of max, uh, max strength in like really fit people. Right. And so if you're kind of near that, that critical force of 60%, you know, doing more muscular endurance work probably isn't going to do you much good, but building that overall ceiling of, of, of muscular strength might be the low hanging fruit for you. And that's what I see in a lot of snow sport athletes, just because of, you know, what a lot of, um, what we see on a lot of social media platforms around snow sport preseason training is like really heavy muscular endurance work. And for some people that's going to get you value, but is it, is it the best value? It, it, it depends. And so I often see, um, that as a, as a gap. Mm -hmm. Um, I see another gap around in season training, uh, and this goes across sports that, it, you know, across outdoor sports in particular, that people are afraid to do in-season training uh, at the cost of performance of their sport. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So there's a couple of things to kind of um, to dive in on potentially. One of them is just an observation. I was scrolling through Instagram the other day and I saw someone who is relatively well known within the snow sports community and they were kind of documenting their training process at the moment and it was just a ton of bands and to be fair they may have just given a snapshot of what's happening but from my kind of past knowledge of training and my personal knowledge I was like get under a heavy barbell and like see what that's like or heavy sandbag or something because I guarantee that will like from my uneducated perspective I think like it's just that seems to be the missing piece for so many yeah. athletes in in that world. Totally. I I agree. I mean, the value of heavy loading. So, um let's think a little bit about about snow sports, right? So, let's say you're a free skier and you like kind of dropping cliffs or hitting jumps or, you know, playing on, you know, playing on the, you know, the side hits on, you know, on, on piece, you know, and like um there's a ton of demand on our tendons and what we know about tendons. So tendons are our, our muscles anchor points to the bone and tendons are like one of the primary areas where we see issues in, you know, a lot of athletes really, but especially in snow sport athletes and, and particularly around the knee. And, uh, you know, what we know about tendons is that the best thing for them is heavy, slow loading. They love heavy, slow loading. They respond and adapt well to it. Um, we need to prepare our tendons for the plyometric demands, but the reality is, is that if if you're if you know the alternative is banded work, um, heavy slow loading is going to get you so much value from a tendon health perspective and just a muscular capacity perspective. Mm, nice. If you were going to have, actually talking about tendons and let's bring ligaments as well, talking about finger injuries and what we can do to prevent those in climbers and yeah, also some like principles to follow. Yeah, <clears throat> it's, um, I think a lot of the times uh, it's, it, it's different if we're talking about new climbers versus like uh, experienced climbers, I would say. Um, but because the training load management aspect varies drastically between the two. Um, I think a lot of new climbers, um, climb way too much and their, their white tissues, their, their pulleys and their tendons are not prepared for the, um, for the loads that their that their muscles develop, like are, are able to put through them. Right. Um, especially if you come from a strength background, um, and you've got some good baseline capacities, um, really quickly you develop some muscular endurance in your forearm because you know you're you're a fit person with a good aerobic engine and and that adapta- adaptation comes pretty reasonably quick um and we're able to put way too much volume through our our tendons and pulleys right um and then so volume management you, you pop a pulley right then you then you pop a pulley because it sounds nice like long. you are just describing my first year and a half of climbing <laughs> It's like you've watched me, a documentary about my climbing journey and gone, this is what Tom's done. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so it, it, that's exactly it. And it's, it's, you know, it's a bugger. You don't like pulley, pulley recovery. It happens, you know, um, pretty seamless. Like the recovery from a pulley can be pretty seamless if you're like 
um, compliant with a, uh, a practitioner who understands the nuances of, of return to climbing and, and the process involved and the, um, you know, but, um, flipping that though, I, I think that hangboarding, um, gets a bad rep in the young climbing community as like an injury causer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think hangboarding can be a, um, an injury prevention tool if used um, at the right time and in the right dosage, um, which, you know, involves a bit of nuance, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Are there but, principles you follow or is it really just an independent thing with hangboarding? No, there's some principles. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so if you're doing, if you're doing higher intensity hangboard work, right. So things like recruitment pulls or max hangs, um, you know, you want to be doing that after a really high quality warm up for one, right? I often see people using that, you know, basically as their warm up, and I'm like, you know, you're you're missing the boat there and and risking injury for sure. Um, but after a really high quality warm up, um, I would want you to be doing that sort of work at the start of a session or spaced out by a minimum of um, uh, a minimum of eight hours, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and usually I would say like strength work in the morning, right. And then climbing in the evening, for example, right now that evening session, you probably wouldn't want it to be a limit bouldering session, right. It, if you chose to do a strength session that day, but if you were doing like a, you know, an endurance based route or an endurance, um, you know, bouldering session, that might be, might be totally great. Right. But you can, you can think of, um, you know, pulling on a hangboard or a tension block as, you know, a means of sort of challenging your, 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 your muscular tendinous pulley system, you know, um, at a higher intensity than you would on the wall. Right. So you can think of it as like a preparedness sort of like so that, you know, the sport is not the most intense thing that you do necessarily. Right. That's one way to think about it. Um, But the reality is, is that most most climbers, young climbers need to spend more time working on their technical climbing skills. Got you. If you were going to compile a list of five exercises Actually, let's make it more interesting. You've only got five exercises that you can prescribe every mountain athlete. I know that's generic. Oh, for, that's way too generic, yeah. yeah. But um, but we, yeah. I think we can work with it. Um, so like five, five exercises, the biggest catch-all benefit. We can increase mm. it to 10 if you want. What would you include in that list? All mountain athletes. Jeez. Um, <clears throat> I think like, uh, I think like low thoracic extension strength, <laughs> it's really specific, but, uh, you know, um, strengthening of the, the spinal erectors below the, uh, um, kind of below the shoulder blade. What movement would you do to, to nail that? Um, you know, like heavy front squats are a great way to target that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as, as one, one example, um, you know, there's lots of like 
rehabby type drills that can target it as well. Like if you're doing like core work, um, instead of just doing a Superman, including like, you know, a plate press component, it doesn't need to be a super heavy plate, but including that plate press tends to get some really good engagement through that area. The reason I think that's really important is it in, in climbers, it, it kind of gives this sort of like strength through the posterior core uh, realm, some continuity there. Um, in snow sport athletes, you know, landing from impacts, there tends to be a lot of this like flexion moment, especially if you're touring and carrying a pack. Um, so that sort of capacity to sort of, you know, maintain a, um, uh, you know, a sound kind of, um, uh, I call it a pillar, but like a strong sort of like torso pillar, um, when you're, when you're skiing and then, <clears throat> you know, generally for like mountaineers, if we're talking about mountaineers, there's going to be high value in that just from like, you know, shouldering a heavy load for long periods of time mm-hmm. or, you know, um, ice climbing with a, with a pack on, for example. Right. So I think that exercise or exercises that, that sort of like target that, like again, front squats, um, are a great example. Um, you know, I think, you know, um, some, some form of like shoulder accessory stability work, um, I think is highly valuable for climbers and snow sport athletes, especially like free skiers, free riders. So talk about um, what that know, would like, look like. Let's get specific in, a, in an exercise. Yeah. I mean, at the most, like, you know, it depends on where you need to start at the most bare bones level. That could be, that could be things like, you know, uh, you know, a shoulder external rotation with a press. Um, or it could be something more like a, uh, like a, like a shoulder, like a windmill sort of drill, right? Like a kettlebell windmill or, or something along those lines. Um, it, it really depends on, um, what, again, which sport we're looking at, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. But like the reason that shoulder stability is so important in, uh, in snow sports is oftentimes like, you know, if you're getting some arm drag, like landing, a landing a jump or, you know, like, um, you know, s- s- throwing your body into a rotation, um, and then climbers just like that, the dynamic, dynamic latching, right. Yeah. Um, or in my, <clears throat> my experience of poor execution of a self-arrest, uh, just like, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That got me. Totally. Yeah. That, did you dislocate? Um, yeah, I separate my ACJ. Yeah. 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 So yeah. And so, oh, no, so for that slap tear. sorry, ignore me. Slap tear. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Some, some more stability through the shoulder and gross strength through the mm-hmm. posterior aspect of the shoulder would be, would be valuable there for sure. Um, but you know, I, I always tell people like trauma is trauma. What right? do you mean by that? And what I mean by that is that, um, anyone who tells you they can prevent injury is, uh, you know, we, <laughs> going back to the, the bullshit of rehab now, <laughs> right? Um, we talk about injury risk reduction. I'm a realist, Tom, and the reality is is that I can't prevent injury, right? Trauma can happen, right? Um, if you, uh, you know, fall down a, you know, 45-degree, you know, uh, freeze-crust snow slope um, and you, you're tumbling and you kind of loosely catch a, you know, there's, there's potential for a dislocation and, and the trauma that goes along with that. Again, we you can't prevent that my story. That was exactly it. <laughs> yeah. 
we can we can reduce the risk of that happening, right? I can tell you that like if you have more sort of a ro- more robust system around that shoulder, it's probably a lower risk of that particular thing causing the injury, but we can't prevent it, yeah. right? The only thing that can prevent injury is like sitting on your couch and not doing the things you love. Mm. And the fact of the matter is, is that that's not what we're going to do. And so risk is, you know, injury risk is inherent in all things, right? There's some sports that are probably a little bit more injurious than others, but, um, you know, you do them for a reason and, 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 but we can reduce the risk of injury, right? Um, I've got three more exercises to hit. Oh, do I have three more drills? Yeah. All right. Um, so we've got something like a front squat. We've got something like shoulder stability. Uh-huh. Something like shoulder stability. I think like a big missing link for um, a lot of athletes, you know, the majority of people aren't full-time athletes. And so, um, you know, usually we spend some time doing what we've been doing right now, you know, either on a meeting, a podcast, doing some photo editing, whatever, um, anterior hip mobility, I think would be a key piece. So that could be like a high Bulgarian split squat isometric or a um, kind of like a couch stretch is a great drill. A lot of people have nowhere near the right amount of mobility to do a couch stretch well. And so I often end up starting people in a half kneeling pelvic tilt mm. with maybe like a foam roll under their, <clears throat> under their shin, for example. Um, but that's a, that's a huge piece for a lot of people. Um, and two other pieces, I think trap bar deadlifts are probably, why the um, trap bar specifically? Um, I think it takes less technical prowess to do it well. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly for snow sports, it's a more specific position. Um, and I think for, for climbers, um, you know, the dynamic, dynamic bouldering, um, we probably, we're probably going to tend to rely more on like, you know, quads anyways. So, um, we still get some of that posterior chain engagement of like the deadlift, but, but a trap bar deadlift is definitely more biased towards the quads. So, um, I think, you know, again, we're looking for globally beneficial drills. I think that's, that, that would be number four. Um, and then, uh, you know, whether you're climbing, mountaineering, or, you know, participating in snow sports, there's probably going to be a lot of like marching involved in outdoor sports. And so, um, some form of soleus loading. So soleus is like the calf muscle that does not cross the knee joint. And it plays a really important role in um, decelerating uh, forward lean of the shin, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, which would be hiking downhill, which would be like, you know, uh, kind of stomping a landing uh, in, in, in skiing. Um, and then in climbing, it, it's, it would be like that, that sort of like bent knee position, towing in on a hold really aggressively. So some form of like, um, soleus, um, soleus work, I think would be probably number five. Have you got an exercise for that? Uh, I mean, you could do like a split stance, uh, like a deep split stance, heel raise. 
you could do a um, you could do like a like a, a rack supported full depth kind of ass to ankle squat with heel raises, um, and you could do that single leg or double leg. Um, yeah, Perfect. those are two good examples. Perfect. I think that's yeah. a great place to think about wrapping up. Um, the final thing I I was going to start asking people is what have you got planned for this winter season coming up? Any like, cause I like to leave people with a bit of, bit of stoke, bit of excitement, bit yeah. of um, encouragement to get out. Like what are your, what are your plans coming up? Oh man, uh, I'm super psyched. So I, um, you know, I, I didn't really get to it earlier around the business side of things, but I get to, uh, um, you know, I, I, I get to be the kind of sports injury and rehabilitation consultant for the Arc'teryx athlete team. And, uh, so every winter, every February, I get to go out to, uh, to Whistler to connect with them and, uh, you know, all the events around the, the academies, the Arc'teryx academies are, are always spectacular. There's so much like good music, good, good, uh, good learning. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, this, this winter I'm also, um, sort of like continuing to double down on my, uh, um, my, my focus on kind of online training of, of outdoor athletes. And so that's going to be, you know, a big, a big piece for me to sort of like continue down that sort of path of, um, you know, combining my passion and my, my career. Mm-hmm. So, nice. yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I've got a trip to the Adirondacks planned here in a, in a couple of weeks for my 40th birthday. Nice. going to be, dragging a few guys down to the, uh, Adirondacks for some kind of early winter, you know, mild mountaineering stuff. Um, but you know, most of them are actually kind of city slickers, which is, which is going to be fun. I always love a good sandbag. Um, that'll be, it'll be fun to take, take a few guys down there and, um, you know, just get the most out of their comfort zone. You know, the reason why I'm really smiling at that is, um, I asked Jess, like what I should ask you about, and she said Don really loves a good sandbag. <laughs> so like, <laughs> the the phrase is there exactly. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> it is it's like a safe sandbag, right? I love <laughs> I love pushing people outside of their comfort zones um, because I think just so many people are way more capable than they than yeah. they than they think they are. Um, and I love sandbags are usually around like you know really enjoying active time outdoors for me. And, uh, and so I just, you know, nothing brings me more joy than like, you know, sharing my passion for the outdoors with, um, you know, with friends and family who, you know, I don't think there's a person out there that like, once they start getting some exposure to time outdoors and like challenging time outdoors that they, that they won't really like draw something super valuable out of it. Yeah. And you see that transformation can happen over a day or a weekend. And you see, they get a glimpse of it. And I think the moment they realize type two fun is actually fun. Then they go, Oh, <laughs> like that, then you've got them. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, my winter, uh, my winter starting off with the, with that Adirondack trip and then, um, kind of midwinter I'm heading in, heading out to, to Whistler. And then, uh, generally I try to get another spring trip out to, uh, out to the mountains, usually more interior BC, hoping to get into Revelstoke again and um, spend spend seven to ten days there. Um, yeah, perfect. How about yourself? Do you have anything any any fun uh, 
Yeah, I'm, so out, I'm out in BC in uh, over New Year. So I'm heading to Whitewater, which I'm pretty stoked about. Like, it's only yeah, there four days. And then hopefully, because lived in Van for coming up to three years, and I didn't get the mm. chance to uh, ski Baker because of COVID, because co- uh, mm. borders and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully getting over Baker and do some accessible touring and probably get up to Whistler. Um, Mike Douglas has promised me a coffee as well after a podcast. So I'm going to take him up on that offer and force him into having a, a mediocre coffee with me. But then I've Perfect. got that, and then I've got a Pakistan trip coming up in late April, early May. Um, so hopefully getting up around 6,000 meters, doing some touring in the Karakorams. Um, so that's a that's a big boy trip. So getting getting on things underway for that. Totally, yeah. A lot of a lot of logistics for that that one. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Logistics no, dealing with it. a random kind of Pakistani guide agency um, <laughs> that I found through Instagram. So it's, um, there's some logistics. Uh huh. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it makes um makes a you know a touring trip to BC and you know feel pretty uh pretty vacation like, huh? <laughs> yeah, but also very rewarding in a different way. Where can people find out a bit more about you? Follow your work. Um, get like get engaged in what you're doing. Yeah. So um, uh, at Mountain Athlete Physio is a great place if you're interested in like rehabilitation, training, strength and conditioning type stuff. Um, or if, if you're looking, looking to have somebody help guide you through, um, you know, through some preseason, off season, in season training, um, you know, that's, that's where you can find me. Um, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to email me at dawn at the movement physio.ca. Um, I always love kind of engaging with, uh, with people on different topics. And, uh, um, if you want to, uh, if you're really interested in some of those kind of topics around, uh, um, kind of bullshit in the re- rehabilitation space, follow uh, at the MVMTPTS, mm-hmm. the movement PTs. Um, that's where, you know, we tend to um, kind of jump on the old, old, uh, um, yeah, you're, you're dragon slaying, you're killing some beliefs in there. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of people doing a very like bad job of the cardboard sign above the head but you guys are nailing it like every time <laughs> i see like one of your posts that has like one of you holding a cardboard sign with something written on i'm like okay right tom take a breath because this is gonna you're, you might get triggered by this <laughs> yeah we we like that so um will will loves uh he's he's the sign guy he's the og sign guy mm-hmm. and uh he's <clears throat> they're doing uh they're doing a mentorship for uh for young physios and they're actually uh, personifying um, the sign guy uh, in YouTube videos. So they're they're making some longer form sign oh, guy stuff where he's actually got a personality. It's 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 pretty spectacular stuff. That's great. I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing that. Uh, thank you for joining me, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, dude. Yeah, nice chatting.